Good morning. If you would turn with me to Exodus 23, verses 20 to 33. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water. And I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out from before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church. So glad you're here today. Hope you have your Bibles and are ready to go. We're going to look at Exodus, Revelation, Jeremiah, Joshua, all over the place today. So you're going to get thumb cramps, brain cramps, and a big heart for God. Hope that's why you came today, all right? Let's pray and uh, get to work. Father, we are so grateful to be together. We need to be here because our passion for you leaks. In six days, we can move from singing great things like all I have is Christ, and a few days later, sell our very essence of who we are to sin, believing lies that the enemy would want us to believe. And so this is serious. This is a serious moment. This is serious work. And so we want to treat it that way and be able, Lord Jesus, to have you meet with us and to speak to us by your word. Help us as we see you, Jesus, in this text again. Thank you for this beautiful book of Exodus and how it helps us to see the big picture story of what you're doing in the world. So come now. Lord Jesus, meet with us. We need you. We pray in your name. Amen. Exodus 19 to 24 gives the law and establishes what is often called the Mosaic Covenant. It's called the Mosaic Covenant because it was mediated through Moses, Mosaic. It's covenant in that it defines a relationship between God's people and God. And today what we're going to see in this text is the way in which God defines his relationship with his people. Today is the last message in this little mini-series called The God Who Commands, and the next week we'll move into six messages called The God Who is Holy on the subject of the tabernacle. The first worship facility as God comes and meets with his people. Let me just remind you where we've been so far. If you go back and turn your Bible back with me to Exodus 19, let me remind you just kind of how we got here and where, we, where we've been. So in Exodus 19, we have Israel that is, they're brought out of Egypt and are brought to Mount Sinai. 
In uh, verse 2, it says they set out from Rephidim. This is Exodus 19.2. They came to the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness, and there Israel encamped before the mountain. So everything that's led up to this point is to bring them to the mountain, and they won't really move from this point on in the book of Exodus. And the point in this particular chapter is for Israel to learn a very important lesson, a lesson that we all need to learn continually. And that is this, that God is not like us. And that's where this section begins. The the fire, the smoke, the supremacy of God is on display. And the point of that sermon was God likes us, but he is not like us. So that's Exodus 19. Exodus 20 is about the Ten Commandments. And those Ten Commandments or those Ten Words serve more like a constitution, more like ten core values than they do individual case law. They were designed to be an overall summary of the way in which God wanted his people to live. And then Exodus 21, Pastor Don led us through a great message on the importance of compassion. We saw laws about slaves and how you to treat people, and essentially that God wants us to treat other people like we would want to be treated ourselves, and that we are to be kind and compassionate like he is. And then Pastor Andrew walked you through last week the whole idea of justice and how God wants fairness to be lived out among his people. And if um, you leave a, a gate of, an, of a fence open and someone's oxen comes in and gets killed and you need to restore that oxen. And just there's this sense of, of justice and fairness. So you can think of that kind of idea in uh, Exodus 22 and parts of um, 23 as we're to be just like God. We're to be just like God. So that's, that's the point of these applications of the law. Today we come to Exodus 23, uh, verses 20, uh, all the way through chapter 24, and essentially what we're going to be looking at today is the closing of the covenant, this covenant of, the, of, of Moses, this Mosaic covenant. After God has rescued his people, after he has identified to Israel what his requirements are, He now is going to communicate to them what he is prepared to do for them if they will obey him. And so we're going to see here some wonderful blessings that are connected to what it means to be the people of God. And we're going to see that God's aim was not just to rescue his people from slavery, but he intends to have a relationship with them. He intends to have a covenant relationship with them and to bless them in ways that are stunning. Then we're also going to see today the way in which Israel then responds to God's invitation. And in effect, they embrace what God is offering, and they say, we want to be your people. And in so doing, this covenant process is then completed. And so what we're going to see here today is the way that God has not only delivered his people, not only revealed his sovereignty, not only identified the requirements for a relationship with him, but now promises blessings to his people and then have his people respond affirmatively, thereby confirming this covenant. Now, it's important for you to understand that this covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, is part of a bigger picture story that God is telling in the Bible. And you can think of these covenants like a crescendo of covenants. And they they build on one another, and they're going somewhere. And if you don't understand what the individual covenant is saying, or the big picture, you'll you'll miss the essence of what God is trying to communicate through His Word and, and through these covenants. And so that's why today we're not only going to be in Exodus, we're going to be all over the Bible, seeing how this all fits into a bigger picture. Let me give you a quick overview of these crescendoing covenants, so to speak. 
One of the early covenants is the Noahic covenant, the covenant that God made with Noah, and that happened after Noah came out of the ark, after he had wiped mankind off of the face of the earth. And the first promise that God made is that no matter how sinful mankind ever became, God would never do what he did prior to Noah, and that is to wipe humanity off the face of the earth. So God sets the rainbow in the sky, a reminder of his promise in the Noahic covenant. The other covenant that we have is often called the Abrahamic covenant, a covenant made with Abraham. And this becomes really the the genesis of the people of Israel, where God comes to Abram, calls him out of Ur, and tells him that he wants to make him the father of the people of Israel, and to bless him, and to bless through him the world, other nations. Along with that, telling Abraham that he would bring him to a land that he would show him. Then we have the Mosaic Covenant. I won't explain all of what that is because that's what this entire message is about. The next covenant after the Mosaic Covenant is the Davidic Covenant, a covenant that God makes with David, in effect saying that um, I will bless you and there will forever be someone from your line who will be seated on the throne of David. Of course, that was and is fulfilled through Christ. And then the final covenant, and this is really where these covenants are going, this crescendoing covenant, they're all building on one another, is what is called the new covenant. And we hear of this new covenant in Jeremiah 31. So it's important for you to know that the Mosaic covenant fits into this crescendoing message that is talked about in Jeremiah 31. So if you have your Bible, or you want to look at the notes, or just listen, Jeremiah 31, 33, it's a very important text. Here's where the Bible is going. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. In the Mosaic covenant, God writes it on stone. He delivers it to them. In the new covenant, he's going to put it in them and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That is where the Bible is going. This grand message that there's coming a day. We know the day has been inaugurated by Christ, that God will put the law of God in the heart of men and women, and the effect of that will be eventually that he will be their God. And then the ultimate expression of this crescendoing covenant comes in Revelation 21 and verse 2. This is where the Bible is going. This is where history is going. This is where your life is going if you know Christ. Listen, Revelation 21, 2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. That's where history is going. And the Mosaic Covenant and the Davidic Covenant 
and the Abrahamic covenant and the Noahic covenant all fit into this crescendoing story that God is telling of a restoration of what went wrong in Eden. That what God is doing is to bring back the reunion of God and mankind. And so this image in Revelation 21 of the new heaven and the new earth is of God who comes down and dwells with his people and is their God and they are his people. This is what all the covenants are pointing toward. Now why is that important for Exodus 23 and 24? Here's why. Because if you don't know that that's where this story is headed, then you'll just read Exodus 23 and 24 as only Exodus 23 and 24 and you'll miss the beauty of what's here. If you just read it as this is just a text dealing with Israel, just God and how he's dealing with these people, you will miss the beautiful story of what is happening here. If instead you read Exodus 23 and 24 through this lens of this crescendo story that God is telling, you'll be able to see things in this text and go, oh, I know what's going on here. This is part of a bigger picture story. And it makes your heart want to sing. What we have here, church, is the story of God's people. And if you know Christ as your Savior, it's your story. Oh, it's an elementary form, but it's your story. Hebrews 8 tells us that the things in the Old Testament are a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. In other words, there are things going on in Exodus, but they're not the whole story. They point to a bigger picture story. And so today what I want you to see is what is in Exodus 23, but also that you might see what is yet to come. So we're going to look at what does it mean to be God's people. And we're going to see that through the lens of Israel. But I want you to realize that what God does with Israel, he does not just for Israel's sake. He does this because he's revealing who he is. And the same God who deals with Israel is the same God who's dealing with you. And the same realities of what it means to be God's people for Israel, the same realities of what it means for us to be God's people. And so when you look at Exodus 23... You can't help if you understand the story to see beautiful things coming out of this text. So there's five realities that happen in this text that I want to highlight in terms of this bigger picture crescendo story. Here's the first one. We see the angel of the Lord. God's intention is to bless his people, but the first blessing is the provision of the angel of the Lord. Look at verse 20 of Exodus 23. It says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. And so the first thing we see is the provision of this angel who is going to go along with them. Now, they're going to be going on a journey to the promised land. But the beautiful thing here is that they are not going to go alone. God is going to lead them. And they're going to do it through his angel. So this is so foundational, and you might just blow through this if you're reading this on your own, but you just need to be reminded that part of the beauty of being God's people is you never walk alone. And that's not something that's just a New Testament idea. That's not just found in Psalm 23. That's the essence of what God means for his people. It means that when you go, God goes with you, and that he, in some cases, fights your battles for you. That's really important when you're dying when you're in the middle of suffering or hardship or difficulty, or even when you're just living normal, everyday life, to realize that what I'm doing here, God is a part of. He goes with me. But the angel is not just a leader for the purpose of traveling. Look at verse 21. The text tells us that, excuse me, the angel 
is an instructor. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. So this angel is not only a leader who will lead the people and guide them, but he also is one who will instruct them. And for that matter, the text says that his name, my name is in him. And 22 even takes it to another level in regards that he is the one who communicates the very words of God. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Notice, if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say. In other words, his voice is my voice. And so we have here the emergence of this model of a divinely sent leader who guides his people, who also teaches them, whose voice is the very voice of God. And then verse 23, we have this angel who goes before them and fights for them. Look at 23, 23. And when my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out. So this is God who says, I'm going to do this battle for you. This angel will fight for his people. There will be a sense that they'll move into the land. They'll do battle. They'll do all the things that God has commanded them to do. But all throughout this time, there'll be a realization that God is the one who's fighting for them. So when you put all this together, what you have here, and don't miss this, is that God is the means of everything that they would hope for in their future. And his angel is the agent by which he will accomplish his work. So God is in effect saying, look, I will be with you right there as you travel into the promised land, right there as you begin the conquest, right there as you fight, right there as you settle in. So the people of God are going to be marked by continual divine enablement. In other words, nothing about their lives could be attributed to their own power. That is Christianity 101. Nothing in your own power. And this is not just what God does in the New Testament. It's what he's doing in the Old. Their lives depended upon their relationship with God. They couldn't have rescued themselves out of bondage. They couldn't provide for themselves into the wilderness. God sent them manna, regular food, in order for them to be sustained. And and the whole point of all of that is for Israel to remember that their life only has meaning when it is connected to their Creator God. They can't live without Him. And if they tried, they lose battles, they starve, there's discipline. So this idea of this angel going before the people of Israel, and the angel of the Lord is not a a new idea. And I'll just tell you who I think this is. I think this angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnate, the pre-incarnate person of Jesus Christ. I think it is the Son of God. We've seen it already in Exodus chapter 3. Remember the burning bush? Well, the angel of the Lord was there. Listen to chapter 3 and verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, and yet it was not consumed. So that whole burning bush thing involved the angel of the Lord. And in October of last year, we talked about what the angel of the Lord here was. And because the angel of the Lord speaks and even says, My name is I am who I am, he has to be God. And so I suggested back then that it had to be a pre-incarnate Christ. And as well, the angel of the Lord shows up in another text in Joshua chapter 5. 
where Joshua, just before he's going to go into the land that will become the land of Israel, meets the commander of the Lord's army. And in that moment, the commander of the Lord's army says to him, take off your sandals from your feet for the place you are standing is holy. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? So this is Joshua's burning bush moment when he meets the angel of the Lord, think the pre-incarnate Christ, as he goes into the land that will become Israel's, the same person who, um, in, in the pre-incarnate Christ who meets with Moses in the burning bush. When you put all this together, it gives you a picture of how God works. So let me just highlight a few things in the crescendo category. Think of Jesus who comes to earth as a divinely sent agent of God. He is the personal presence of God, the teacher of God's ways, and he's a deliverer. And all of these things fit perfectly into the model that we see in Exodus 23. Think as well, you have Jesus or the angel of the Lord leading Israel. He's the personal presence of God. Think then of the radical implications when we hear things in the New Testament that you are all indwelt with the Spirit of God. The radical implications that God's presence now is not mediated just through a localized person or, as we'll see in the weeks to come, a localized tabernacle, but now God's presence is among you personally, mediated by virtue of the Holy Spirit. And then just think of what it means to be the people of God that central to our, our, our identity is the fact that God leads us, He guides us, and He fights for us. I mean, this is one of the beautiful things if you have a relationship with Christ that you get on your knees and you cry out to him and you say, Jesus, I can't fix this and I need you to help me. And he shows up, you, you, you realize, you know what? What I believe is real. He really works for me. I prayed about this and God answered the prayer. God fights for me. He works for me. And granted, he doesn't do it every single time that we ask him. But when God shows up, there's a sense, you know what? God is working for me. That's what it means to be the people of God. So we have the angel of the Lord. We're able to see an image of what is yet to come. Here's the second thing. The second thing is the issue of land. I thought a lot about this week, this subject of land. And it's, it's just captured my attention. Because traditionally, as I would read over a passage like this, and I would think land or promised land, it wouldn't register a whole lot of significance in my mind and heart. But I began to think about the significance of why why a land? Why didn't God just promise that he would bless them wherever they went? Why is there a specific plot of land that God says to Abraham, I'm going to bring you to a land that I will show you? Why does he promise the Israelites a land that he would be in? And what is the whole connection here? Think of it as in this way also. So God creates a planet, a place. He puts a real man and woman on that planet and then puts them in a garden, the Garden of Eden, where God and Adam and Eve lived. And then when God, when they sin, God banishes them from this real place, from this real garden. So there's something important about this idea of land and not just the specific land area, but what it means to be in a place. Look at Exodus 23. 29. He says, I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, from the wilderness to the Euphrates. Think of this as 
from Maine to California, from North Dakota to Florida. Think of it that way. Broad categories. This is the land that I'm going to give you. And I will inhabit, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. So the people of Israel were going to receive this land as a place of blessing. But this land was a place to live, a place where God would dwell. And this land where they would dwell would become a part of their identity as a people because it would link the promise and the presence of God in a land in which they would live. So what's the significance of this? The significance is the fact that this relationship with their creator was not ethereal and just spiritual. It actually had a physical component to it. There was an actual land and an actual place eventually in the tabernacle and eventually an actual place in the temple where God would dwell. That there is a physical component to what it means to be the people of God. To be the people of God is not just an internal relationship. It's not just who you are in the inside. It's not just about your spirit and about your soul. It is all about that, but it also is about the physical reality of what it means to have a relationship with your creator. So a relationship with God has both a spiritual and a physical component to it. And this will become really important as we begin to talk about the tabernacle because the design of the tabernacle and eventually the book of Exodus ends with God coming and he dwells in the midst of that tabernacle and the idea is that God has come and he dwells in a place and my relationship with God is not just spiritual, it is that I could see him and feel his presence and I can come to the tabernacle and that's where God is. So it's not just a spiritual relationship, there's a physical component to it. Why is that so critical? Here's why, because many of you have a completely wrong understanding of what the, your experience in eternity is going to be like. You have an idea of heaven that has no physical component to it. It might even shock you to, to know that Jesus still has a physical body. He still could be touched, that he has a resurrected body. And that the Bible says that our heavenly experience involves the new heavens and the new earth. So it's not just this, this sort of spirit world where you're just kind of in this subconscious state of happiness or you're kind of floating on clouds, strumming harps or something like that. You're actually living on earth. I don't know if you get to pick where you live. You know, I don't know if like, like, like Minnesota's going to be nobody there, you know, or I, I don't know, you know, Southern Florida, we're all going to be like really scrunched and, oh, that's all fun. I don't, I don't know what it's going to be like. Like, no, I'm going to Spain or Antarctica. I don't know, Siberia. You know, I, I don't know what you're, what you're going to do. I don't know if you get to pick. I don't know if there's better spots. Maybe that's it. Maybe there's better spots based upon how you serve Christ. And he's like, well done, thou faithful servant. Key West. You know, I don't know. Um, <laughs> And you're, and God meets you and he's like, you just made it. So, um, Saskatchewan. I mean, I don't know what happens. So, but the point is, is that you're, you're living in a real world. There's this existence that is tangible and physical. That the eternal state, listen, is a physical reality, not just a spiritual reality. Beloved, there's going to be a moment that we are going to be able to see the glory of Christ and there won't need to be sun in this new heaven and new earth because the glory of the Son of God will be the light of the world. There'll be no sin and no darkness and nothing that'll ever be wrong and we'll live in this world, not just in this spiritualized sense, but it'll be a real physical existence, much like earth is now, but with everything that's wrong, gone. 
I mean, it's going to be incredible. But the reality is there's a physical component to it. The vision in Habakkuk 2.14 is this, that the earth, just listen to this, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The message streaming from planet earth will be that God has taken this wayward kingdom and brought it back to himself, that Eden has been restored. The beauty of this is that God... And his people dwell, and they dwell in perfect unity. But you know, there's another implication of this. It means that so often we fall into an age-old trap of separating our soul and our spirit from our bodies. We separate, we have this understanding that our relationship with Jesus is a spiritual piece, but it's not earthly, it's not earthy, it's not physical. When the reality is the body and what we do physically matters otherwise why would death be part of the warning or why would jesus have become a man the point is that what we do physically positively and negatively really really matters listen physical obedience and physical righteousness they matter so it's not just that well it really what really matters is who i am on the inside well that's true but what you do on the outside yeah that matters too right so there's this, this component of who your relationship with God is all about, not only in the inside, but also in terms of what we, what we do. It matters that you're worshiping with other people who are real. People who can touch and feel and say, bro, I'm praying for you. That there's a, a physicalness to the world in which we live. There's, there's over 1,800 gospel seeds that have been planted. And it means that you've, some of you had to organize physical Bible studies. Put up a tent in your backyard. You've invited. You've used your mouth to say things about the gospel. That what you do physically really matters. That it's not just about your spiritual component of your life there's a physicality to our relationship with our creator that is really really important so there's there's land third there's a promise of blessing verse 24 when they move into the land of israel they are commanded to verse 24 not bow down to their gods nor serve them nor do as they do That's a really important phrase. Nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. What's going on there? They're going to move into a land. Here's what's happening. They're going to move into a land where the people's worldview was this. If you want crops to grow and you want your cattle to be fertile, then you have to worship Baal and Ashtoreth. If you don't do that, you're you're not, you're going to starve. The whole system of the land in which they are moving in is based upon an understanding of life. This is how the world works. When we give Baal homage and honor, he sends rain. So if you don't worship Baal, if we don't worship Baal, it's not going to rain. So this whole worldview and mindset of what they're involved in, and they're moving into this land, and God tells them, don't go there. Don't be like all the other people that are around you in your culture. Instead, trust me. And notice that he gives them blessings. Verse 25, you shall serve the Lord your God. I will bless your bread and your water. I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. What is he promising there? He's saying, I'm the one who controls all these things. And so therefore, as they go into the land that they're going to possess, they're going to encounter a culture that is hostile to their worldview, and they're going to be tempted to do as the people of their culture do. 
They're going to be tempted to act like they act, to buy into this worldly system. And in the midst of all of that, God is calling his people to act and live and to think differently and to put their trust in him. Friends, this is the essence of what it means to be God's people. It means that you believe fundamentally that God's ways work. And even though those ways may be completely countercultural, that you believe that these ways work. Can we just acknowledge that our culture isn't becoming more and more Christian? The opportunity for us to become more and more countercultural, it's gonna be, it is coming and it's coming fast and furious. But you know what? News flashed. Most Christians in the history of the church have had to live in countercultural environments, right? So we're not in an, in an environment that has, the church hasn't faced many, many, many times. In fact, most of the Bible is written in a countercultural setting. So therefore, take your hand off the panic button and instead realize this is a phenomenal opportunity to be able to say, yeah, I'm not going to buy into this system. I'm going to live by this system because this is the way that God has commanded me to live. It's just tangible. Just give you an example. Nobody gives money away without believing in a completely different worldview. To be able to hoard your money and grab your money and possess your money and say, i got to protect me and take care of my stuff. When you just give money away, from, from a financial standpoint, it makes no sense. But the reality is you know that the Bible says you cannot give the Lord. That God is the one who controls. He has a thousand cattle on a hill. And sometimes they wander over to your pasture, right? They're like, come on in, come on in, right? And God has this system that, that as you give, he loves to give. And you cannot outgive the Lord. There's a system that's above the system. And followers of Jesus, those who are God's people, they don't buy into the world system and say, we're going to live by another system. And that system is the best system. God motivates his children with blessing and reward. In fact, that idea of reward and blessing is a frequent theme in the New Testament. Just, just listen to these verses. Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In other words, there's a whole nother world that God has blessed you in that you can't even believe. Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him also give us graciously all things? Luke 12, I love this one. You can almost like hear Jesus grabbing the face of someone saying, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The world's pressing in, got all these issues, all these challenges. You're just thinking, how is it going to happen? He says, Fear not, little flock. My Father's going to give you the kingdom. Or Revelation 21, 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither there shall be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So part of being, part of the beauty of being a part of God's people is the gracious blessing which God supplies that obedience brings blessing. That's, that was one of the very first lessons I tried to teach my children. You know, obedience brings blessing. That's like really foundational. Now as they get older, I want them to realize that obedience, it brings blessing. Sometimes that blessing isn't always good. It's sometimes hard things. There's discipline. But when they're little, I want them to know, look, you obey, there's good things that come. Obedience brings blessing. You follow God's ways, they work. And this is the lesson that God wants his people to learn. It's the lesson that we need to be reminded about today, that God's ways work. Can I just remind you that God's ways work when it comes to your money? God's ways work when it comes to marriage? God's ways work when it comes to family? 
God's, God's ways work when it comes to sexuality. God's ways work when it comes to your work ethic. And even though the culture might continue to drift further and further away from those, and you might feel like, I'm the only one in my little sphere of influence who thinks this way or believes this way, you just remember, God's ways work, and you're countercultural. That's what God has designed you to be. He intends to bless His people. That's always the way that God has worked with His people. Fourth, there's blood. If you read the Bible and you know Christ, it's like, of course there's blood. Chapter 24, we have the completion of the covenant that turns its attention now towards the response of the people. So God lays out his terms, and now it's time for the people to respond. In verse 20, verse 3 of chapter 24, the text says that Moses told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. So, you know, they're at the base of the mountain. There's all this smoke, all this fire. The message, loud and clear, is God is not like you. Moses comes to the people and says, here's what God says. And, of course, the people respond with one voice. All the words of the Lord that he has spoken, we will do. Right. How'd that work out for them, Right. Unless you, lest you look at the Israelites and go, you silly people saying things like that. Just remember how many times on Sunday you've said, all I have is Christ. And on Tuesday you're like, yeah, not so much. And if you ever look inside your soul and think, man, why am I so fickle? I'm like all passionate for Jesus on this day. And then like, yeah, not so much over here. You know why? Because you're human. That's why. And yet in the midst of that, here is this God who he knows when they say, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. He knows full well they're not going to keep it. And yet God still loves them. (laughs) So what happens? Well, verse 5, the people sacrificed animals to the Lord. They offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And then Moses does something really remarkable. He takes blood from the sacrifices and divides it up. Verse 6, Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. Half of the blood he threw against the altar. So he takes half of the blood and this altar that's been built for the sacrifices, he takes the blood and he splashes it against the altar. And the image that's meant to be communicated here is that this blood has appeased the wrath of the God to whom we've offered these sacrifices. So he, he splashes the altar with blood and then look what happens next. Then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, here they said it again, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then they even add this, and we will be obedient. They just kind of add it up. We promise. Pinky swear. I mean, we, we promise. We are going to be obedient. And then notice what Moses does. Moses took the blood, I guess as he had it in another basin, and he probably took it and threw it up in the air. And this blood of a congregation of people who have just said everything the Lord has said we will do. And even though God knows that there's no way they're going to be able to keep that. There's no way those words are actually, it's meant in heartfelt um, unity and a sense of genuineness. But the reality is they're, they're not going to be able to do it. And even though God knows that, the blood comes and it sprinkles. And you can imagine all these little blood droplets all over them. And the point is, is that God had been appeased with the blood and the people had been purified even though everybody there knows that there's no way they're really going to be able to do it. Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold 
the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. To be a part of God's people means that you are blood-covered. In the New Testament, it is Jesus' blood that covers us in order to have a relationship with your Creator, in order to have a relationship with the God who made you, something has to die in your place. Sin is that bad, and God is that holy, it requires substitutionary death. The parallels here to the New Testament, I mean, they're so clear. Hebrews 9, just just listen to this. The other night, one of my kids was reading the passage, and they were just reading it. I said, no, 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 don't, don't read it like it's a Big Mac. Read it like it's steak, right? Just slow down. Savor this. Don't just, you know, sit down and just mm, enjoy this. So like, like it's filet mignon, even though you've never had it. But just, you just, you just imagine what a good piece of meat would taste like if I bought it for you. So anyways, Hebrews 9 says this, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, tent, that's a tabernacle reference, parentheses, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats or calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You can't read Exodus 23 and not think of that and go, yes, that's my Jesus. Read that and just go, yes. Okay, good, you're getting it. All right, so you gotta, just got to get that, right? You're going to read that and say, yes, this is Exodus 23. This is about just the Israelites. This is about Jesus. And here is Jesus at the end of his life as he's holding the cup and the Passover meal. And he says, this is my blood of the covenant. It's exactly what Moses said, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. To be God's people mean that you have, means that you have been ransomed by blood. You can't help but read Exodus 23 and just go, yes, that's what happened right there. I've been sprinkled by the blood of Christ. By the, the blood of Jesus was splashed against the altar and made atonement for my sins. This is what it means to be the people of God. And then finally, this is my favorite. All this is introduction for this one point right here. This is, this is, this is incredible. The covenant confirmation ends with a fellowship meal where Yahweh and 70 representatives from the people, they meet. So here is this God who is holy, who is commanded. There's been blood sacrifice. The people have confessed their allegiance. And so God says, why don't you come? And so 70 elders along with Moses and Nadab and Abihu, verse 9 says, they, they, they come up and it says they saw, they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. 
In other words, you don't have words, bro, to explain this. You're like, why? What is it? You can't even. It's like what John was trying to explain in Revelation 4 3 when he saw the throne. It had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. In other words, language doesn't capture what you're beholding. When, when you're able to see the beauty of all of what God is for us in Christ in the new heaven and new earth, you, you will not. You, there are no words that can capture. The categories are busted with the beauty of who and what God is. They see him, and there under his feet were a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And it says he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. In other words, it wasn't safe for them to be there, but God allowed them to be there. And they beheld God, and then don't miss this, and ate and drank. This description of what we have here of God is so reminiscent of another meal in Revelation 19 that takes place in heaven called the marriage supper of the Lamb that happens between God and His church. But the most glorious aspect of this meal is the simple fact that God's people and God are in beautiful fellowship together. The fact that God has come and He's among His people The glory of God is now beheld by His created beings. This this will become a theme as Moses moves up the mountain for 40 days. It will become a theme as they build the tabernacle and the book ends with the glory of God coming and descending on the tabernacle and God will dwell with His people. This is the goal of all of the covenants that God would come and dwell among his people again. We see it here and we'll see it even more in the coming tabernacle and you see it in the coming of Jesus, which is why John says in John chapter 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. It's what you hear in Revelation 21 when that loud voice declares, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. The beautiful reality of the new heaven and the new earth is that this holy God who is righteous and pure beyond comprehension and sinful people who have been bought by the blood of the Lamb are finally in perfect union with their Creator again and they see him and there's no darkness, there's no sin, there's no gate even in the city because why do you have gates you have gates to keep people out because there's bad things there's no bad things in this world anymore and there's perfect fellowship and harmony and you go in and out of the presence of god and we're in this real physical existence and we know one another and we sing together and we rejoice one another and it never ends and it's never going to change and the sin that plagues us all will be over and satan will be captive forever This is what it means to be the people of God. This is what we experience in part right now. A little taste. The best you get of this until we get there is right now. College Park Church on Sunday. And you know what I want for you more than anything else in the world? I want you Sunday after Sunday. You don't need a good sermon. You don't need better songs. You know what you need? You need the taste of the presence of God. You need to know when you go home and sit around a meal today that I have met with my God. The reason I've given my life to this is not because I love the Bible, and I do, 
but it is because I love the beautiful reality of what happens when God comes near to his people. And when God shows up, people's lives change like that. They get a new orientation of what life should be. And that means today, if you're not one of God's people, if you've never understood that you have this this thing that's broken in you, and it's broken because of sin, and we're all broken And the only way it gets fixed is by a relationship with Jesus. You can't fill that gap in your heart with anything else. You can try, but it'll never work. And the only way that you're actually brought back to wholeness is by acknowledging my problem is me, sin is the issue, and I need a Savior, and I can't fix it. So Jesus, would you come and make me new? That's the essence of what the gospel is. And the reality is, if you've not received Christ today, I want to invite you to become one of God's, one of God's children. To realize that the problem is so deep, so huge, so significant, you can't, you need, you need an alien righteousness. You need somebody else to change you. And if you know Christ as your Savior, oh man, then this text should make your heart just go, yes. When you see it in a text like Exodus or you see it in the book of Revelation, it should make you bow in humble worship that God, even though you say, everything you say I'll do, I'll do, God knows. No, you won't. But yet he still loves you anyways. And even though you fail and come back and fail and come back, God still keeps pouring out mercy and grace upon you. And that you come to realize, why in the world me? I don't deserve any of the grace that you've given to me. If you look around dads today, some of you may have made a huge mess of your life, and the reality is God's still going to be kind to you. And some of you sitting around a table today, you look at all the beautiful things that God's given, you don't deserve any of it. And God's been so gracious and kind, and at the end of the day, being part of the people of God is to be reminded that we have absolutely nothing without this God who has loved us and cared for us and been so kind to us in a way that we don't ever deserve. And that's why the central focal point of the new heaven and earth is Him and not us. It is His glory and His grace that is the central feature of our eternal existence, and rightly so, because without Him, we have nothing. We are the people of God. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you bought us, redeemed us, and made us your own. And we come today in humble acknowledgement that we have nothing without you. All we have is Christ. And so, Lord, today I pray that you would help us to know how we ought to respond for some Maybe this very day would be a day where they would say, God, I I need you to transform my soul. I need your help, Jesus. Come in right now. And Lord, for others, that we could just be reminded that the essence of living is living according to your path and your way and your heart. And so give us big, humble hearts today as we consider the beauty of all that it means for you to have loved us in our desperate and sinful condition. We love you, Lord. Thank you that we're your people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 11 says this, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable are his ways. 
who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsel or who's ever given a gift to him that he should be repaid. For of him, through him, and to him are all things to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you, College Park. I love you.